Hypebeast Radio, I'm Jeff Staple, and this is The Business of Hype, a show about creative entrepreneurs, brand builders, innovators, and the realities behind the dreams they've built. So many different facets contribute to what we know as street culture today. From sneakers, fashion, music, gaming, automobiles, and even food. And then, of course, there's the sector of art. Nowadays, the line between the art world and the fashion world has become so minuscule that they are undeniably now a part of each other. Where would streetwear be without the likes of legends like Takashi Murakami, Cause, Banksy, Futura, and James Jean. This culture simply does not exist without the contribution of artists. And so for our season eight premiere, I sit down with one of the most recognized artists of today. There is no lane that he has not touched, from worldwide exhibitions to collaborations with the likes of Hedy Sliman, Kim Jones, Adidas Originals, and Hajime Soriyama, just to name a few. The interesting thing to me as well is that this artist is also a businessman. On top of the commissions and art projects, he also founded his own architecture firm known as Snarkitecture, which attempts to bridge the gap between museum experiences and physical retail experiences. So let's get into this week's guest on the business of hype, none other than Mr. Daniel Arsham. Thanks for inviting me to your amazing studio out in Long Island City. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. Um, you want to introduce yourself first and who are you and what you do and where we're at? Sure. My name is Daniel Arsham. I'm a visual artist, um, kind of visual thinker, and we are out uh, in Long Island City at my studio. Cool. How long have you been here? We've been here about five years. Um, the first studio that I had was um, just on the other side. Uh, in Brooklyn, in mm -hmm. Greenpoint. And uh, we kind of outgrew that space and moved into this one, um, kind of now outgrowing this space as well. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Nice. You, your work requires a lot of space, for better or for worse, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, we produce 90% uh, of the things that uh, you see uh, out in the world of my work is mm -hmm. produced here in the studio. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Even the oversized stuff. I mean, you know, there's certain things like um, the bronze works mm -hmm. physically can't lift them in here. You need a gantry crane. Right. And uh, a lot of the works that I make that are attached to architecture mm -hmm. uh, are fabricated in fiberglass. You need a special room for that. So mm -hmm. that's done offsite. But all the painting and drawing and um, all of the cast uh, sculptural work is produced here. Yeah. And by trade, you are an architect, right? Or do you no. consider yourself more an artist? <laughs> I, I'm not an architect. Oh, you're not an architect. No, I'm but not you, an architect. you founded an architecture firm. I did found an architecture firm. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, you know, primarily out of necessity. Uh -huh. uh, I wanted to study architecture. Yeah. And was not accepted at the architecture school at Cooper. Uh huh. But I was accepted in the art school. Cooper Union. Cooper Union. Okay. Yeah, here in New York City. Right. And um, a lot of my work involved the kind of. Uh, manipulation of architecture, the rethinking of it. And 
after uh, finishing school, there were, you know, a number of projects I worked on where it's in a museum or a gallery. And mm-hmm. typically in those contexts, I can get away with whatever I want, right? Mm-hmm. The gallerist will let me do that. But when the works enter public space or where they're designed to, uh, to engage with the public in a different way, you need an architect, you need an engineer right. to kind of oversee those things. So I worked on a project, must have been like around 2005, that actually it was it was for Dior. And it oh. was when Eddie Sliman was at Dior. Mm-hmm. And he did this thing where he asked artists to create works for the fitting rooms. So I proposed the design and he loved it and the team loved it. Then it got to the architect who was actually building the shop. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, there's no fucking way this is going to work. It doesn't meet building code, all of these things. So I brought an architect that I had gone to school with um, to help me kind of reset that work Mm -hmm. into the language of architecture. And we achieved that project. There was a lot of success around that and attention. And both of us, I think, saw this area Mm -hmm. that was kind of closer to architecture than it was to art. Uh Things that you know, required an architectural knowledge set and also things that maybe I didn't want to put my name on, mm-hmm. you know? So we started Snow Architecture with this idea of kind of making architecture perform the unexpected and having a perspective within an architecture studio of an artist, mm-hmm. you know, which is um, every architect would might say that they're an artist, mm-hmm. uh, but quite rare to have this kind of sustained artistic universe inside a design architecture studio. Right. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So what did you study? I studied painting, actually. Okay. So, uh, you know, Cooper Union is a quite loose, um, there's no focus, Mm -hmm. right? In many art schools, in the U.S. at least, you major in painting or sculpture. And at Cooper, you kind of do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So I primarily focused in, in painting, but, you know, the work was quite conceptual in that way. And I think Cooper... I learned less how to make things, um, more why. Okay. And, and the why um, and how to structure kind of meaning or, or lack of meaning right. or context around a work mm-hmm. was really, you know, what I got out of Cooper. Yeah. Cooper is famous for being a tuition-free school, right? But very, very difficult to get into, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So uh, Cooper Union was started... Um, in the 19th century mm-hmm. by uh, an entrepreneur, Peter Cooper, who was an immigrant and who couldn't afford to go to school mm-hmm. and built a, a huge empire, right? Land holdings in the city, has a ton of different inventions mm-hmm. and created this school um, to basically engage people that couldn't otherwise afford to go to school. Okay. So the school was free. Uh-huh. Actually, there was a big controversy around an issue that the school went through um, starting after the financial crisis. Yeah. And they had to change that. So I was part of a group that kind of fought against them. Mm -hmm. And now it's back on track to being free. Oh, okay. I actually have still a lot of engagement with the school Mm -hmm. and um, helping fundraise for them. And um, I'm doing a big uh, talk there this Friday, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah. Nice. Did you graduate? I did graduate. (laughs) (laughs) I was a terrible graduate. (laughs) I was a terrible student in, really? in high school, uh-huh. but once I was at Cooper and in college and I was kind of doing the thing that I wanted to do, Yeah, it was... So yeah. you could be a terrible high school student, but still get into Cooper. Oh man, I almost failed out of school. So I, they're, they're judging you fully on your skill set, not your academic rank. Great. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> the way a lot to of do kids it if you're going to be an right artist. Yeah. <laughs> and so how long did you last before you dropped out? 
No, I didn't drop out. Oh, I graduated. You fin- oh, you did finish. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, good. You finished with a is was it a painting? It's uh it's a BFA, BFA, so a Bachelor of Fine Arts. With a with a focus on No, they don't even say that. It's oh, okay. kind of just like Bachelor of Fine Arts, um, whatever you studied. Mm-hmm. For them, it's kind of irrelevant. It's like you're um you're taught about thinking, right? Interesting. And a lot of the key professors there, um, Hans Hakka and Doug Ashford and Waleed Rod, these mm-hmm. are people that are known for um, a lot of the concepts, right, within their work. Wow. That's cool. I went to Parsons across town, and it was much more about doing, mm-hmm. and they didn't teach you about thinking. Thinking was left. <laughs> you had to do it at home. Well, you know, the you can always learn the doing. The yeah. thinking is kind of harder to to pick up. Which is probably why I dropped out. <laughs> I was like, I've learned the doing part. Like, I, I'm done with this now. Mm. So were your early inspirations painters and, like, sort of more fine artists? I mean, I, I was really into architecture okay. still. So a lot of the early paintings I made were these kind of architectural scenarios, uh-huh. these uh, fantastical uh, universes that um, positioned architecture in uh, a kind of state of either decay mm-hmm. or construction. In a, in a way, it has a relationship with the work I'm making now mm-hmm. in sculpture. Um, but for instance, there was paintings that I made of these caverns and buildings inside of the caverns that were either kind of growing or... You know, they looked like the formations in the cavern. Yeah. So you like it when it blends within the environment that it's living in? Yeah, where the architecture and the natural world were kind of um, Mm -hmm. one in a way. Right. And, you know, I I continued that work um, sometime around 2005, Mm -hmm. sort of the same period as the the Dior project. I started to think about an inverse scenario where if you thought about the paintings as... um, an architectural scenario within a natural landscape, mm-hmm. the uh, works that I made in architecture were the reverse of that. So they were a natural scenario coming back into an architectural universe, mm. right? And the work kind of progressed from there. Mm. When you graduated Cooper, what was the intention of what you were going to do to make a living? Well, I was super fortunate. I won a $15,000 grant mm-hmm. um, called the Gelman Trust, which completely transformed my life at that stage. Okay. And effectively, I lived for like two years on that $15,000. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that was going on, I, I grew up in Miami. Uh-huh. And this was right around the time that Art Basel was starting in Miami. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I almost dropped out of school was that a lot of my friends that were there you know, they were meeting people in relation to um, Art Basel, and yeah. I saw all these things happening. And, you know, one of my professors was like, look, that's still going to be there when you're done. Mm-hmm. Finish out, get the knowledge that you need here to actually achieve those things that you want to yeah. you want to be doing. So when I finished school, I moved back to Miami okay, and rented a house, kind of like a really shitty falling apart house mm-hmm. with some friends, gutted it. And we created our own gallery. And part of the the drive there was, you know, as a young artist, the idea of showing with a gallery obviously seems interesting. Mm-hmm. But how do you do that? Yeah, You can't walk into a gallery and like, no gallery will accept seeing your work. Mm-hmm. You know, you hand them a portfolio. It's not, not, not yeah. going to happen. Um, so it's you really need to create a context where you invent the scenario where those things might be seen. Mm-hmm. So we did that. We had this gallery. Um, we would sh- do exhibitions of our work and, and friends of ours work. And it actually became kind of this thing, <laughs> this thing. Yeah. Um, it was called the house and, um, 
you know, a couple of the museum directors started to take notice in Miami. And there was a period where, uh, it's like 20 of us were offered this exhibition at, um, the museum <laughs> of contemporary art. Wow. And I was 21 uh -huh. at the time. Based and on the work you did at the house. Based on the work that we did at the house. Yeah. Yeah. Where was the house? Like in, in it Miami? It was on like... uh, Biscayne Boulevard and 24th Street. Okay. Um, which, you know, it was kind of like a typical Miami-style house. Uh -huh. And, you know, it's just like you can do shit like that when you're right out of school. And, like, I, you know, we slept upstairs and yeah. the gallery was downstairs. Right. And... Was it strategically located in a place where, like, during Art Basel, people could, like, potentially catch it? I mean, we would do big openings, uh -huh. uh, you know, during that time of year. And obviously the intention was to get seen. But that was also such a different time in Miami where it was the first Basel that had happened outside of Switzerland, mm -hmm. right? And a lot of the dealers, when they would come to Miami, there was no, like, parties and all this stuff that you see happening yeah. now during our Basel didn't exist. Mm -hmm. It was, like, sleepy. Yeah. <laughs> so dealers would go and look at artists that were local. Oh, and wow. Imagine that. You could actually go and look at art. Imagine that you weren't at a you know fashion party. <laughs> um, so you know, in fact, that's how I met uh, Emmanuel Periton. Mm -hmm. He came to the house. He did come to the house. Oh, shit. Yeah. Um, so that's so, a great example of instead of you trying to pitch the gallerist, they literally walked into your door. Yes, but they were recommended to do that okay. by yeah, a collector yeah. that <laughs> was in Miami. The trickle um, effect. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like you know at the time. The art world is, you know, certainly as a student coming out of that, it's so opaque, you know, how to understand how it functions, how you get in it, mm -hmm. and kind of like terrifying in a way. Yeah. You know, even just walking into a gallery in New York, mm -hmm. th the immediate impression is like, we don't want you in here. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, it's intimidation. It, it's intimidating, mm -hmm. you know. Even um, as a viewer, not even as, forget I know. about you trying to make a living from I know. this. That's yeah. what I mean. That's yeah. what I mean. You know, <laughs> when I was here in school and we would go to galleries, it's like, you know, I don't know, you walk in Gagosian and like, you know, a bunch of people in suits and mm -hmm. they're like, who are you and what are you doing here? That's the vibe that you get, yeah. you know? <laughs> it is what <laughs> so, it is. to break that down, you know, you need to create your own opportunities and eventually, you know, hopefully they'll come to you. Mm -hmm. One thing is clear to me about Daniel's early days. The man had talent. Now, I know some of you listening to this may have been a terrible student, or maybe you weren't even getting into the school that you wanted to get into, or maybe you're just flunking through it all. It's important to note that these moments and that grade does not define who you are or how you will end up. The age old question in life is finding out your lane, and Daniel did exactly that. Now, as we've been told, talent can only get you so far. You have to utilize hustle to really make it worth something. Just as Jessica Washick said in season seven, hustle beats talent. Hustle beats talent. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? A lot of the times, like you can be the most talented person, but if you're not working towards something, if you don't have a goal about something, then it doesn't necessarily matter because someone who does have a goal and someone who is hustling and working really hard can surpass what you are naturally given. Daniel may not have gotten into the program of his choices, but instead, he made opportunities for himself to be able to do so. He never gave up on his love of architecture and instead fused it with his sculptural background. Even at a time when the art world was, as he calls it, more opaque, 
a young Daniel faced the daunting art world and made opportunities for him to have a seat at the table. When it comes to tapping into the art world, there are few better at creating opportunities than Daniel Arsham. Were you selling work out of the house? Not often, uh-huh. but <laughs> certainly that would have been the intention, right? So when you're young and you just, you're just out of college, let's say you're, you figured out a way to display art so that people can actually access it. How do you know how much to even begin to charge for art? How do you put a price tag on your creation back then? I mean, you know, I think the first <laughs> drawing that I sold was like $600, and, and that's like, just based on what, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, there's <laughs> like for me, as when I made my I first guess. t-shirt, at least there's like t-shirts cost 30. Yeah. But art is like 600. Okay. I don't know. You know, I had a lot of peers around me uh-huh. um, who, you know, a couple of them had been selling pieces and the collectors who started to notice things, you know, $600 for a drawing of an unknown artist. Okay. It's right. not, you know, 25,000. Mm-hmm. It's something reasonable and. <laughs> you just kind of had to start somewhere, yeah. you know? I, I, I interview a bunch of artists, actually, and a lot of them have the 500 600 as the starting price. Because I think, what happens if you go below that? Like, if you're under 300 or you're basically... I mean, there's a whole psychology to it, right? Basically like, yeah, it's like you the value that you place on your work is not only what people um, you know will pay for it mm-hmm. effectively, but it also can create an aura around it. Mm-hmm. Maybe not at that level, but certainly at higher levels. Um, there's a... There's definitely a psychological aspect to the pricing in relation to the work. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I want to switch a little bit uh, to your obsession with time. Mm. Did this start out when you were a kid or was it something that you learned like in college that you became obsessed with this thing? I mean, I always liked science fiction movies okay. and, you know, time travel and uh-huh. film and, you know, Back to the Future was one of my favorite um, movies. Number two, <laughs> not number three. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, and it really started in school kind of inadvertently, all the paintings that I was making with these architectural universe, Mm -hmm. you know, you have these critiques in school that are also the first kind of moment where you, you have to get up in front of people and talk about your work. Also kind of terrifying experiences, (laughs) you know, as a, as a young artist. And I think like one of the questions was, where's all the people in these paintings? Uh And I guess like inadvertently I had. I never painted people in them. And it started to um, become clear that it it sort of helped create this universe in the works where you couldn't tell whether they were now or in the future or the past. It's Mm -hmm. like the people, how they were dressed, you know, how their hair was cut, all Mm -hmm. that would kind of lock it into a a particular moment in time. And that ethos of works being able to kind of float in time has been a, a kind of a recurring theme, but, you know, within the, the paintings and the drawings and, and the sculptural work that mm-hmm. I've made really since school. Interesting. How, how do you personally deal with time? Do you feel like, you know, some people you talk to, they're like, time moves so slow. And then other people are like, I have not enough time. Like, which side of the fence are you on with time? I mean, you know, I never have enough time for uh-huh. anything. And does time move fast for you? You know, it's... Um, I'm sure you, this happens to you too, but uh-huh. I travel so much yeah. that I don't even fucking know when I am sometimes or where I am. Sometimes I'll when, wake up in a hotel room and I'm yeah. like, literally wake when up and you? I'm like, where, no, where am I? Yeah. And when is this? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I also have my family life. I have two kids. They're yeah. kind of, it, that's a whole crazy universe uh-huh. that 
um, you experience time differently through them. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think the periods when time slows down for me is when I'm painting, when I'm drawing, mm -hmm. these are things that there's a direct association with, there's, there's a kind of physical collapse and, and slowing down of time that's yeah. forced. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're working on the computer or you're traveling, obviously things move quicker. Right, right. Yeah. Have you heard of the theory that we live in a simulation? Of course. Do you... Many of them. Do you uh, prescribe to any of that? <laughs> Uh, no. No. You think no. we're on a time, we're, we're on a linear time track here. I think we are on some linear time track. Uh -huh. Um, you know, being interested in science fiction and the idea of, you know, uh, time being relative, mm -hmm. obviously there's places in the universe where time moves quicker or slower. And, um, these things obviously are relative. I'm honestly surprised you don't think we live in a simulation. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like people that talk about God versus evolution, mm -hmm. or you know the the Bible yeah. versus evolution. My body, my experience of the world, just tells me that evolution is correct. <laughs> right, right, and I'm not. I'm this a, is not a game. A, I guess I'm I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not a religious person. Um, I've read the Bible, mm -hmm. and this that theory feels correct to me. Yeah, right. So okay, it's hard for me to argue though that a thousand years from now either the technology has gotten so good where this could be real or we're extinct. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yes, that's, that's possible. Yeah. I mean, if it came out that we were living in a simulation, uh -huh. I would not be surprised. <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think that's I don't know how thing, we would but... ever prove it, though. That's the only issue. Yeah. Um, speaking about time, I want to ask you about um, how much of your time when you're creating, would you say, is spent in the thinking, outlining, sort of conceptual stage versus the actual getting your hands dirty creating stage? Like how much time do you think on stuff before you say, go, let's get, let's get cracking? Years, decades. Really? You're yeah. just marinating on shit for years. <laughs> you know, it's, yes, it's not always that I have a particular time horizon for something. Mm -hmm. But there are ideas, you know, I keep a notebook and I, I take notes a lot when I travel. And that's the kind of time, really one of the only times now in my life that I'm, you know, I'm on a plane, I can think. Yeah, yeah. And I'll take notes about experience or ideas that will come up that, you know, in some cases, they may not be possible to realize, mm -hmm. either because they're really expensive to produce, or I don't have the technology mm -hmm. within my studio or the capability. And then 10 years later, you know, I'll be looking through a notebook yeah. and for an exhibition and be like, shit, this is a good idea. I, uh -huh. I should do this now. And in some cases, literally, I can't even trace the idea of where it came from. Yeah. Um, there's so many different things happening within the studio between, you know, my my art studio, architecture, the additions company, and all of that, that it all feels like intertwined and, and uh, that it's all influencing other things. Mm -hmm. It's like a stew, like a soup <laughs> yeah. of ideas. Yeah. Do you ever have writer's block? No. Never. There's never a time where you're I have, like, oh, I, I have, can't think of something. I have like time block where <laughs> I don't have enough time to actually realize the things that I want to achieve. And Word. Um, there's so many ideas and um, things that I'm experimenting with that, you know, in some cases, as I said, you'll see them in five years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So can you break down the different divisions that you mentioned before? So you have the, the firm and then you have, you call it the additions division? Yeah. So, you know, I have... Snark architecture, yeah. which is the, the design studio. I have my art production studio. Mm -hmm. 
And then, you know, about 10 years ago, I started making additions. Okay. And at some point it became mostly because the people that worked with me on my art studio were like, this shit's becoming crazy with mm -hmm. the additions. The pace is different and just a whole different idea about making work. And that oh, needs I to be it. That, that needs to it be. It used to be thing. combined, the art division and the additions. Yeah. Yeah. And and still, you know, all of the additions, we still produce them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like a Medicom out here like producing these, although I have done something with Medicom, right. a different thing. But <laughs> the additions that come out of my studio are all still handmade uh -huh. in, in the studio. Right. So yeah. it's not like mass produced. Yet. No, no. I mean the edition sizes mm -hmm. are always editions of 500. Okay. Actually last year I introduced a kind of uh, more collapsed edition, smaller edition mm -hmm. of 99. Mm. Um, but you know, I, I started these editions. One thing was I realized, you know, there's obviously this audience that is not spending $2,500,000 on an artwork, mm -hmm. but they want to engage in this universe. Yeah. And me as a collector, I also noticed like I was buying a lot of editions from, from different artists. Yeah. So there's this kind of other area. Mm -hmm. um, there's accessibility and... Accessibility, it allows the work to engage with a different audience, yeah. with, a, with a much larger audience. Right. And then at a certain point I realized, okay, there is collectors who are, you know, the more like high roller collectors mm -hmm. that are buying like the, you know, artworks from the gallery. They're also fighting to get one of the editions mm -hmm. at the same time. That's cool. So they don't really care. The value for them is not in the price necessarily uh -huh. it's about the object right if you had to draw like a pie chart of the three arms architecture art and additions mm. what is financially what encompasses everything like what is it like 30 30 30 or is it like um you know? i mean architecture is kind of its own thing mm -hmm. and operates completely differently because it's um, all client driven right it's i mean we're not selling physical things you yeah, know yeah we're 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 designing um, spaces and experiences, mm -hmm, really. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it fluctuates year to year. Obviously, yeah. you know, it's all kind of growing. Uh -huh. And part of the reason why we're, <laughs> we're kind of outgrowing this space. <laughs> That's awesome. But, you know, I've been sort Is of... Is it pretty well balanced, would you say? Or does one really bring you, home the bacon? I think it's well balanced. You'd probably have to ask the directors of each of those studios, <laughs> you know, when they're trying to fight for me paying more attention to one or the other. But, yeah. you know... I don't have a regimented schedule in that way. Mm -hmm. I show up to the studio at 9 a.m. I'm here till 6. Mm -hmm. I just float around. Uh -huh. Certain days I'll have you know, more to do in painting or, or in sculpture, but there, there's days I spend the whole day in architecture or in, you know, working on the additions. Uh -huh. And um, then there's these other kind of weird outlier projects that have nothing to do you know, yeah. working on this Porsche. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's like personal project on this... Um, on this Porsche that's like, everyone's like, why the fuck are you spending so much time on this car? <laughs> it's not an artwork. And I was like, well, it's kind of an artwork. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The recent Dior project you did, mm -hmm. the more recent one, yeah. which division did that fall under? The art studio. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, I've done, for better or worse, I've had a, a lot of friends kind of in fashion mm -hmm. universe. And in some ways, you know, as an artist, most of my friends are not visual artists. Mm -hmm. Just haven't gravitated towards um, that sort of creative field. And part of the reason is I think I kind of know what artists do, kind of understand that universe. Mm -hmm. And because I'm not in fashion, not in that kind of design universe, yeah. I can glean a lot of knowledge mm -hmm. from those people about how they operate their business, how they create meaning in their own work and life. Yeah. And... uh 
you know, used a lot of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned you sort of float, your brain is not compartmentalized where like you come in and nine to one is architecture, one to five is no, you know, Alex, who's my partner in architecture, he's always like, from this time from to this time, we're going to do this. And I'm like, all right, let's see. <laughs> we'll try. <You> know? <laughs> Not going to happen. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find that to be stress inducing or that's the way you want it to be? Which part? That you want to be f free floating. It's just kind of how I function best, you okay. know, and I think you know, certain types of creatives, they have to compartmentalize their thinking, but I can literally be like painting mm -hmm. and then like go into like a budget meeting. <laughs> it's like no problem. Uh -huh. And then go back to painting and I'm like, whatever. Yeah. I was going to actually totally ask fine. you, is there a slice of your brain that is highly concerned with finances? Oh, 100%. Okay. So you always have one eye on the... I... First thing I do when I, when I wake up in the morning is I check the... Uh, Excel sheet that we use uh -huh. that controls money in and out, oh, what's wow. paid, what's not, and awesome. the bank account, uh -huh. you know, all those things. And, you know, part of it's like, you know, I have over 30 employees. Right. I got to be responsible, make sure that they can get paid, the mm -hmm. healthcare is covered, all that stuff. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, part of it is the business that I'm in, there is high prices for mm -hmm. artworks. It's also really, really expensive yeah. to operate. And a lot of these sculptures, you know, there's a big risk in them to, mm -hmm. in production. So I have to be responsible in thinking about, you know, how finances work, cash yeah. flow for the studio, all that. I mean, there's a definitely like a certain grandeur to your work. And I, I've thought when I've seen some of your work, like, do you have an intention that there's a buyer out here for the, for the amount that you're about to invest into this artwork? That's a thought, right? I mean, it's it's definitely I mean, is like you think about this. Ideally, you know, the gallery's thinking about that, and that's their kind of responsibility. Um, you know, I've been fortunate. Obviously, I'm in a great position now, mm -hmm. and I think things are relatively stable. That definitely was not always the case, mm -hmm. and I've had some really hard, difficult years. And um, you know, not in the beginning of my practice. You know, I couldn't give these works away to people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, yeah. um, just trying to get that attention. And I think now it's, you know, the inverse problem where the demand is extremely high. Mm -hmm. And, you know, both because I want to control that demand, but also like I can only produce a certain amount of yeah. things per year and it, it keeps things on a relatively even keel. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so at this point, there's always a buyer great. out there. Nice. Yeah. And so you're only really limited by your imagination at this point. Limited by my imagination and, you know, controlling um, quality mm -hmm. and, yeah. you know, it's a supply and demand thing at this point. Right, right. Yeah. Is it a very conscious decision for you to like sort of, I always think about when you look at brands that really control their distribution, it's almost like a spigot of like, like, you know, I don't want to turn the faucet full on and just let everyone have it and start selling like unlimited digital prints of your work or stuff, something like that. It's not quite that calculated, but it's mm -hmm. more like you know, because I'm a collector myself, yeah, I know when I buy something, I want that thing to feel unique. Uh -huh. I want it to feel like it's coveted and difficult to get and there's not like a million of them out there. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm producing things in my own artwork, in the additions company, all of that, I keep things limited enough that they feel like that, mm -hmm. right? They're extremely difficult to get. You know, when we do the addition sales, there's, you know, 500 editions. Yeah. There's 100,000 people on the site 
trying to right. click the button, you know? Yeah. And that's just, you know, of course, there's the whole resale thing and all mm-hmm. of that, which is um, its own, like, headache in yeah. a way. Yep. Um, but, you know, I, I try to mostly be responsible to the people that collect my work mm-hmm. who have an interest in it. Yeah. And they want to see it go in the right direction. So when you see 100,000 people trying to buy on your site, does it ever... Th- cross your mind that maybe the next time we should make a hundred thousand of these things no. no okay it i mean certainly like you know my some of my staff sometimes are like oh you know we could like increase the price of this or you know make more of them and i'm like no mm-hmm. this is what we're Hold doing steady yeah. yes and right. uh it's you can either in terms of your lifespan right at least in the position that i'm in mm-hmm. for sure i could blow out everything one year and just like and then be done yeah but that peak i'm only going to reach it at one point mm-hmm. so i can either go up and go all the way down or i can slowly like make my way up to yeah it. yeah if you haven't taken a look at daniel arsham's work i highly suggest you do so now so much of his work is fitting of what he just told us the ethos of works being able to float in time his art really has no bounds and has a futuristic, almost borderline apocalyptic feeling to it. So I'm not surprised that his work approach is somewhat similar. Nothing is compartmentalized, and rather yet, it's just like he floats to whatever needs to be done, whether it be creating a mock-up or working on a sculpture or sitting in on a budget meeting. Which leads me to my next point, that is that the idea of floating in time seems to have given him the flexibility perhaps to wear the multiple hats that he does. In managing three different ventures, Daniel is not just an artist, but he's a full-on entrepreneur. It's rare when an artist can break from their mold to become successful business owners, but Daniel has done exactly that. He's fully involved in not only the creation process, but also the nitty-gritty details of finance and business plans. I know very well from my own perspective that being a creative, in order to expand your business and your art, you will always have to set aside a part of your brain that can operate equally well creatively and analytically. So a lot of your work sort of references things that are inherently sort of reminiscent in our in our childhood, I guess you know, we're in similar generations, but like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of sort of objects that I see that like bring back instant memories, whether it's a DeLorean or Spalding and things like that. I find it interesting that you told me just now that a lot of those works are initially unauthorized, Mm -hmm. right? So you just take, whether it's a sneaker or a ball or some brand and you just create art out of it, right? Right. Without permission. Without permission. But the permission that I'm given is fair use clause in the constitution of the United States. Oh, so break that, <laughs> break that legality down to us. Okay. So, you know, one of the key things and, you know, I didn't come from an art background mm-hmm. in terms of my parents, mm-hmm. my mother's in law and my father's banker. Okay. So it's literally the opposite. But one of the things early on was, you know, have a good lawyer, mm-hmm. have a good accountant, have a good bookkeeper. Mm-hmm. So I've been working with the same attorney for the last 15 years and Certainly one of the things in copyright law is about, you know, use of other brands. And fair use clause essentially means that if I'm an artist and I want to comment about something in contemporary life, mm-hmm. let's, let's use a Spalding basketball as an example. Right. I cannot make that comment 
without referencing the original thing. Mm -hmm. And so I cast a Spalding basketball, says Spalding on, on the ball. Yep. And the ball has been remade into a geological material, crystal, volcanic mm -hmm. ash, mm -hmm. and becomes this sculpture. Now, if I was remaking a basketball, yeah. That was actually a basketball right. that said Spalding on yeah. it. Then I'm infringing on their uh, their copyright. Okay, but in the context of creating something that is an artwork that is using some element of contemporary life within it, it um, I'm, I'm allowed. And has a brand ever seen something and reached out to you because of that? Many times. Okay, always to you know, essentially say, what else can we do with you? <laughs> okay. So it's never been to send you an angry letter. I've never gotten a cease and desist. Damn. Or no. knock on some wood, no. right? <laughs> yeah. Knock on wood. I mean, look, I'm not disparaging these brands. I'm not creating a context that I'm obviously, you know, making money off of that. Yeah. Um, but I'm not doing it in a way that's creating a negative impression of the brand. And in many ways, I'm celebrating the uniqueness of what that means, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Because part of the reason why I would use Spalding basketball or you know some other um, element is because those things are so ingrained in our minds, and I use them because they mean a particular time frame. Yeah. So when I want to locate my work sort of within time, mm -hmm. I need something that locks it into a particular period. Yeah. So we know a basketball is from like the last what seventy five years. Right. It's not from 200 years ago. It's not 200 <laughs> years in the future. And when I use a work from Greek antiquity, uh -huh. that has another meaning. Right. Um, so, you know, with my attorney, we've taken this position that these things are inherently impossible to create mm -hmm. that that message and that meaning yeah. without the use of that. Wow. You, you recently just did a, a whole thing at Louvre. So it wasn't at the Louvre, but... Um, with the Louvre. With the Louvre. Yeah. They... Um, been working on an exhibition for another museum in France, which mm -hmm. is also a French government uh, museum uh, called Musée Guimet. That museum is about um, primarily Asian antiquities, so China, Japan, Cambodia, Indonesia, and it's a, um, a historical museum. Mm -hmm. Their archive is held in the same uh, building as the Louvre archive, which is outside Paris. Okay. So I went, this was about two years ago, I went out there to go look at all of the, of the things that they had there. And primarily what they house there are molds of the original objects. And in the space, there was molds of the Venus de Milo, the Michelangelo David, the Venus of Arles. And I was like, what the fuck is that? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. So I asked the, um, the director there, you know, what about all of these other molds here? Like, can I use those mm -hmm. to make some work? And she kind of laughed at me and she yeah. was like, no, <laughs> that's like French. Um, they say like patrimony, which uh -huh. is like the French heritage. Right. Yeah. So I was like, all right, I got to figure out a way. The resources of there, I'm talking about molds dating back to the 19th century. You know, totally. that scene at the end of Indiana Jones where they go into that building and there's like this warehouse mm -hmm. and they put the, the Ark of the Covenant yeah. in this crate. That's what this place looks like, uh -huh. okay? And it's filled with molds of every stone right. sculpture in France. That's insane. Literally ancient history is in that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you want to fuck with it. Well. <laughs> you want to touch it. I want to touch it. <laughs> I wanted to use it. Well, to the French, it's fucking, if you're touching it, you're fucking with it. <laughs> yeah, in a way. Okay. But so. some interesting things came out of that, okay. right? So uh, 
initially I got the no, then I wrote a letter, Emmanuel Periton, who's, you know, uh, my, my dealer in France and, and globally, um, wrote a letter and helped me essentially gain access to that. And mm -hmm. part of the thing, you know, a mold is essentially, uh, it's like a shell that they create on the original work that allows you to make a duplicate of it. Okay. And I use, when I'm creating works in my own studio, I'm taking an existing object. Let's go back to the basketball mm -hmm. for, as an example. And I make a mold of that. Yeah. Now, there's no way that if I said to the Louvre, can I go into the Louvre and make a mold of the Venus de Milo? Mm -hmm. For sure, that would not happen. But they already have those molds. Right. So this is what I wanted to use. Um, once I gained access to it, part of their concern was um, that the types of material that I use in my work could potentially damage the mold. Mm -hmm. And the molds, in some cases, are from the 19th century as yeah. well. So we had to do all these tests. And the other caveat that they made was, I can make all of these works, but I cannot take the molds out of France. Okay. So I had to went with my team to France uh -huh. and made everything at the Louvre Atelier. That's sick. Um, so, you know, some amazing things came out of that. And one of them was the curator of Greek antiquities from the Louvre became aware of this project mm -hmm. and was curiously really interested in it. And part of his interest is throughout history, artists have interpreted works from the past. And as a good example, you know, during the Renaissance, there was an obsession with many artists, Michelangelo, all of the, all of the great sculptors of the Renaissance with works from antiquity, mm -hmm. Greek and Roman, and all, going all the way back to Cycladic art. And one of the things that they did was restore these works. Okay. But what do you do when you have a work where you're missing the arm or, mm -hmm. you know, you kind of have to make up what that is. Yeah. And the style of what the restoration looks like is very period specific. Uh -huh. So you look at something that they made in the Renaissance, it's going to look totally different from yeah. something during the 18th century, like French neoclassical. Mm -hmm. And so there was the, there's a whole idea about what do works from antiquity mean? Right. And he was particularly interested in how my kind of rethinking of those works adds to that lineage and okay. that, that conversation. So that advanced the project along to another stage? Well, we'll see. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, the final goal, obviously, would be at some point to get these things back into the Louvre, right? So could I take the work that I've altered and place them back in the context of the originals? Wow. Yeah. That'd be a dream. It would be. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about um, what makes for successful art, okay? To some artists, and I have a lot of artist friends as well, and they sort of fall on one of two sides. One side is, I don't care who sees it. I don't care who buys it. I don't care how much money I make from this. And the other side is, no, it has to be seen. It has to be transacted on so that I can continue to create. Mm. It's almost like Which side Bernie you guess and Boomer. <laughs> Judging by <laughs> the car, <laughs> I would say like you're, when you think of art, I'm assuming that you care about how it is consumed and, and transacted upon. Well, I think that, you know, art is like a language, right? Yeah. And do I want to be out here just blabbling away and talking to myself? Mm -hmm. No, I'm making something mm -hmm. and speaking to an audience. I don't know who that audience is in many cases, mm -hmm. and I want that audience to be as big as possible. Mm -hmm. um, but these are ways of kind of rethinking everyday life. Yeah. And a lot of my work is about interpreting our everyday experience uh -huh. and kind of reforming that. Right. Do so, you get criticism from the other side of that fence? 
I mean, certainly when I do projects that feel commercial, yeah, right. So the project I did with Dior, mm-hmm. the project with uh, Renault or Porsche. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, even in the beginning, and attitudes have changed around this, but even in the beginning, you know, people in the art world, collectors, even some of my gallerists, they were like, "How are you gonna?" make a project with one of these companies and allow them to use your work to promote and sell their brand. Mm-hmm. And my thinking was like, I was like, how do you not realize that I'm using them mm-hmm. for their resources, their production capabilities, and most of all their reach? Yeah, absolutely. There's people who, you know, look at Dior, or Ramoa, or the project did with Adidas, don't go into a gallery. Mm-hmm. They, it's not part of their everyday experience, yeah. right? Yep. If you didn't grow up in that kind of, universe where you're encouraged to go see art it Mm -hmm. just might not be part of your everyday universe yeah and and even your thinking so i figured okay i'm gonna engage these um other entities and allow them to push my work out into this much larger audience yeah Yeah. and now they look back on and they're like okay can i get that adidas collab right (laughs) right right It's definitely not an easy road to, to navigate, though. Like, not every artist can navigate that because you could fall off. It's a slippery slope where you just start doing commercial stuff over and over again. Yeah, it can become, you know, overly commercial. Yeah. And, you know, it's part of the reason why, you know, I haven't, I haven't exploited that. Certainly, I could have done many more things mm-hmm. with each of these entities. And, you know, for me, it's more about touching that and then, like, walk yeah. away or uh, take a break on it. Right, right. So I kind of see it as, like, since the beginning of time, there's always been patrons of the arts. Yeah. Whether it's like the Medici family sure. or something like that. And today we just have a new interpretation of that. Before they might have given you a house to paint in. Now they're giving you a runway show. Yeah. But I mean, that's a relatively <laughs> new thing. But, yeah. You know, even if you go back to Warhol in the 60s, mm-hmm. you know, Warhol, if he was alive today, He'd be definitely designing sneakers. Oh, yeah. Only question is he'd be like at Nike or (laughs) Adidas. I know. know? Yeah, yeah. And I have my suspicion of where he'd be. But (laughs) that context of an artwork Mm -hmm. that is engaging in everyday life is something that's been around, I mean, certainly before pop art, Mm -hmm. but was championed during that era. And I don't think anything's really changed in that way. No, it's not just really. that taste and the way that people think about these things, the yeah. context of it, right, right, has changed. So when a company reaches out to you, what is the checklist parameter of the decision making of how you will say? I mean, yes here's or the no. thing. It's is never it? been the company reaching out to me. It's and part of the reason why I often feel comfortable in these scenarios that it's the person. Mm-hmm. So when I did the collaboration with uh, Ramoa, it was Alexandre Arnaud. Mm-hmm. When I did the collaboration with Dior, it was, you know, Kim coming to me directly and saying, you know, look, he had started this new thing. Obviously, Mm -hmm. I was aware of what he was doing. And I trusted that he was going to execute that in the right way. Yeah. It's not like info at Dior.com. Hey, you want to work together? Yeah. No, I think young people seem to think when these entities collaborate, it's like, there's a huge board meeting at Adidas and they're just like, everyone in favor of working with Daniel, yeah. say yes. It's, no, it's like two people probably started that exactly. conversation, right? Yeah, it's like, in some cases, it's like one person and maybe that person even has to fight for it, mm-hmm. you know? Internally, yeah. Internally and, and explain why and, um, you know, that's certainly the case, you know, I did this project with Porsche. Mm-hmm. Now, I was a fan of that brand. Yeah. I loved those cars since mm-hmm. I was a little kid. 
and I wanted to do a project with them. And a friend of mine um, was instituted at their in their marketing department, okay. so he was handling stuff within that. So I said to him, "Look, can you just get me like a meeting mm-hmm. with somebody there so I can explain this idea?" And what I wanted to do was to create. You know, I had done the DeLorean, I had done the '61 Ferrari um, mm-hmm. GT California. Yep. And I wanted to do a, a functional, drivable car, like a, in that, your way, in my way, yeah. w- with erosions in it and all that. And so he was like, "Man, this company—it's like you know, German, very Old. kind <laughs> of rigid company." Yeah. But you know, to their credit, I don't even think they really got what I was going to do. Uh-huh. But they saw something in it mm-hmm. that they could tap into, right? And particularly. For sure, like my audience is younger and they want to engage that audience. So even throughout the process, they kind of just gave me trust and mm-hmm. allowed me to do my thing. Right. Um, initially, the idea was that, you know, I was going to keep the car afterwards and we were going to sell it. But once they saw the response from it, uh-huh. it was, you know, kind of astronomical. And they effectively said, look, we want to keep this. We're going to put it in the Porsche Museum you don't get it. You're in like, Stuttgart. Well, I, <laughs> technically, I still own it with them. Yeah. But So this car, which is an artwork, uh-huh. is going into the museum where the most famous Porsche cars ever <laughs> Amazing. have been. And to, to have it sit in that context, like, okay, I went in there, I touched this universe, yeah. and the, the, the conversation that I'm engaging is obviously completely different from the obsession that these cars, you know, that, that people have with these cars outside right. of that. It's a right. whole other side conversation. Yeah. You mentioned your connectivity to a younger audience. And I think that's one of the big thing that a lot of brands see as like an advantage of working with you. Mm-hmm. How do you juggle between the fact that 99.9% of your audience consumes your artwork through a three by three inch <laughs> screen on Instagram versus like, well, yeah. Number one, I disagree that that's the that's the the number. <laughs> Certainly, a lot of people see the work through Instagram. But is it when you create? Are you thinking of how it will look on Instagram? No. Oh, really? No, no, no. It's, you're no, so no. good at it, though. <laughs> like I thought, like you think about that. No, I certainly think about the potential that the works seen in that context will introduce and allow people to go see things, you know, in real life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I have an exhibition, the numbers of people that visit them yeah. are, they break the records of any like, you know, museum or gallery. Right. You know, to the point where they got to increase their security, all that shit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the value in social media lies. Is yes. Also, you know, when I, when I did the, uh, the opening of the last exhibition in Paris, you know, the curator from the Louvre was there. And you can just feel in the audience yeah. that 50% of the people never went to a gallery before Uh yep there's a the way that they engage with the work the way that they're looking at it just kind of the the feeling of it fresh yeah it's new it's fresh and they they don't have the the um experience of of going to museums and galleries and um which is exciting for a museum and gallery because that's to them it's new customers yeah 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 and it's also like why would you not want to engage those people right they do they just don't know how Mm -hmm. right and so they're seeing that and, um, you know, I also think not every city, not every place has museums or galleries where mm-hmm. you can see work. Yeah. So Instagram, other, you know, social media, it allows those things to be, it allows to have a conversation with those audiences mm-hmm. that 
might not have a gallery or museum right. in their town. And, you know, when they go to New York or L.A. or one of the, you know, bigger cities, they'll go see it. Mm-hmm. When it comes to Daniel's work, exclusiveness isn't the goal. He's an artist who wants to make his work accessible to the everyday person. There is no clout, education, class, or anything tied to your background that excludes you from this world that he's allowed you to be a part of. As we mentioned in the beginning of this interview, back when Daniel was living in Miami, the art world can be exclusive. Perhaps you yourself have walked into a gallery or a museum and found yourself feeling out of place or possibly quote unquote uneducated. We've all been there. And Daniel makes his purpose to do away with that notion. Oftentimes, when creatives get opportunities to go commercial or mainstream, you'll hear the collective critics calling these people sellouts or hating on their work. But like Daniel said, if he really wants to rethink everyday objects and experiences, how can he do that with only a niche audience? Partnering with brands like Kith, Dior, Romova, and Porsche, just to name a few, has gotten him the reach that he needs to force more people to engage in that conversation. Um, wrapping up now, in your 15, 20 years of being a professional artist, have you made any mistakes where you wish you could tell young Daniel, like, don't do that, mm-hmm. don't, don't sign that deal or don't do that thing? Any, any regrets? I mean, certainly there's, you know, projects that I'll look back on and I'll be like, maybe that was not the right context to place that in. I think that one of the things early on, and this was like, you know, one of my favorite professors at school told me the projects and the things that you choose not to do, that you say no to, are going to be as as important or more important than the things that you actually do. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, you know, if you work on something like just for the money or just for some particular reason, you better make sure that that's the thing that you want to keep doing, right? Because yeah. if you do this thing, obviously you're going to get more people asking you to do that thing. Mm-hmm. So the pieces that I put out into the world, the collaborations that I do, you're seeing, you know, one out of a hundred things. I said no to 99 other things. Yeah, right. You know? And that's part of and, the art. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's also an editing thing in the studio, you know. Sometimes people come to the studio here who who know the work quite well and they're like, wow, I've never seen that, you know, piece before. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, you haven't seen it because I didn't, it's not done or something's wrong with it. I don't like it. Yeah. And <laughs> it's maybe at some point it'll come out. Uh-huh. But, you know, a lot of experiments, artworks that are created in the studio, they may never leave mm. the studio. Out of all and, the work that you've done, what's the one that always gives you the warm and fuzzy feeling that you're most proud of? <clears throat> I know they're all your children, but there's got to be one that you're just like, yeah. I mean, some of these more large scale you know, installation-based works that I just, you can see the change in people's perspective Mm -hmm. while they're viewing it. Mm -hmm. And it's so outside of the everyday. Yeah. Um, You know, part of the the thing in my work is the materials are quite commonplace, especially when I'm working with architecture. Mm -hmm. So I'm not actually adding anything to it. I'm just manipulating something that's already there. Yeah. And the effect that you can have, which Mm -hmm. is such a dramatic effect with such simple and kind of economical like materials and means that can be really profound. I think like, I don't know what the name of the piece is, but the clock that's Mm -hmm. digging into the, yeah. What is that piece called? 
falling clock or moving clock. Okay. Like it's genius. And I could imagine as a creator, when you conceived of it, you were like high-fiving yourself. <laughs> You're like, fuck, this is good. Like, and I, I want to, you know, break down the process of it. Like, cause you mentioned you do a lot of sketching, mm. right. And, and like notebook sort of writing and then you executed on it. But like, what was the line that you wrote that preceded that? You know, it, it's kind of, um, it's iterative. Uh -huh. So when I started making these works that manipulated architecture, the first thing I did was related to the drawings before that. So I made these interventions in the wall that looked like a cavern or a glacier, right? Yep. They yep. were directly related to the thing before. And that's why- We're sitting next to one right now. <laughs> yeah, we're sitting next to one in the studio now. That's why it's kind of difficult to trace the origin of oh, okay. it. And it's almost like if you said, okay, where did the idea come from for that like clock? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe I could go back and look in the sketchbooks and understand it. But at some point, there was a drawing of that. Okay. And maybe it was a drawing where I was like, okay, I drew it. And then I like forgot about it. Uh -huh. And it's really the point when the work yeah. is in the context of the museum or the gallery. And you see somebody with it. You see somebody in front of it, how they're experiencing it mm -hmm. and, and what it's doing to them. That's the moment that you're like, okay, high right. five. Right. High five myself. You're right. It's um, even different when you not finished right. it here. In the studio, yeah, it's you not don't the know. same. Yeah. You don't know until it's in the context of other people. Totally. I didn't Sometimes you that. can be like, okay, this is like really good when you see it uh -huh. um, in the studio. Sometimes it's like a scale shift, you know? Obviously, yeah. like when I um, made this work for the Paris show, the, the Michelangelo, mm -hmm. when I saw the piece come out of the mold, and those pieces are like, it's like Christmas because the mold, you know, you can't see the work when mm -hmm. it's in the mold. Right. And then all of a sudden the mold sets. Yeah. You go to the studio and you open up the mold and mm -hmm. you're like, fuck, this yeah. thing is incredible. Mm -hmm. You know, you you can feel it. That's kind of what you want for the audience too. Yeah. But unfortunately, it's not formulaic. It's it's kind of magic. You know, there's there's unfortunately things within the art world, and maybe this is a fortunate thing, where um, there are gestures that you can make which are intentional, mm -hmm. that you know will affect people in a certain way. And there are these other like magical coincidences of materials and ideas yeah. that can have this really profound effect. Right. Those are much more difficult to plan for. And actually the only way to find them is by iterating and repeating and, and, and working mm -hmm. and then throwing away 99 things and keeping that one magical kind of wow. moment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, any last bit of advice for young artist a, a young version of you right now just getting out of art school trying to find his voice his price his exposure level like what advice would you give him or her i mean i think you know in the beginning as i said when you're an artist you need to create opportunities for yourself you know it's kind of like this idea of making your own luck mm -hmm. create a context where your work can be seen don't wait for some gallerist or somebody to come to you in many ways, with social media and all of these things, you have that pre-existing, yeah. right? And the other thing I would say is I never have hung out with people that only were into the things that I was into. Mm. So I was always around like people in music or in fashion or, you know, dance or, you know, other areas. And I gain much more, weirdly, about yeah. my art practice from talking to like a doctor about something mm -hmm. than I do in many cases from other artists, mm. you know? So expand your circle. Yeah, expand your circle and, you know, um, 
be, don't be afraid to engage um, other types of creatives mm -hmm. in, in your own work. Great. Awesome. Yeah. I think we're good. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this journey inside the deep and complex mind of Mr. Daniel Arsham. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please do me a favor and leave a rating and comment to tell us what you think of the show. And also tell a friend about the show. And if your friend is everyone on social media, feel free to share it there as well. It definitely helps out a lot. We occasionally answer listener questions on the show. So if you have a question, shoot it over to me. You can reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm at Jeff Staple. Our associate producer is Christina Hong. Photography for this episode was captured by Ali Imam. As always, you can find out more about the show and listen to other episodes at hypebeast.com radio. This episode was recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic at the Snarkitecture headquarters. The interludes were recorded during the stay in shelter policies to combat the spread of Corona. And we apologize for the subpar audio. I'm Jeff Staple, and you've been listening to The Business of Hype on Hypebeast Radio.